Well, here we are. It is November 28th, and it is officially the most wonderful time of the year. Now, I realize many of you have been listening to Christmas music since like early October, and your lights have been up year-round. But for the rest of us normal people, it's really after Thanksgiving when we really start to get excited about the Christmas season, isn't it? It's really after we've digested all those sides and pies and turkey when we kind of turn our attention ahead to Christmas and all the wonder and expectation that it brings with us. I know in our family, uh, as we do each and every year, the day after Thanksgiving, we put on some Christmas music, we put up our Christmas tree and decorated it, and we hung our stockings And we are really just living the Christmas dream in our home. Nikki has sort of transformed our quaint little bungalow into a winter wonderland, and our family calendar is really just about to be jam-packed with all the different traditions that we look forward to each and every year. You know, over the next month or so, we're going to do some traditions, perhaps you do as well, things like advent calendars for our daughters We're going to get some hot chocolate, drive around and take in the Christmas lights. We're gonna bake and devour some of our favorite Christmas treats. And for 10 days leading up to Christmas Day, each and every night leading up for those 10 days, our family is going to pile on the couch and watch one Christmas movie per night as sort of a countdown to Christmas. And honestly, out of all of the many traditions I love, that Christmas countdown where we watch those 10 movies in 10 nights leading up to Christmas might just be my favorite. Over the years, we've had multiple revisions and some controversial addendums to the list that we have arrived at, but I am proud to report to you today, we have the ultimate perfect list of the 10 greatest Christmas movies ever made. Uh, Some of the movies on this infallible and impeccable list are movies like George C. Scott's A Christmas Carol. It's a Wonderful Life is another classic on that list. But you see, the genius of that list is those heavier, more reflective films are masterfully balanced out by those sillier, more lighthearted, animated films and kids' movies like A Charlie Brown Christmas and Elf. Uh, You know, it's kind of funny, if you watch some of these Christmas movies year after year, you'll start to notice that some of the same themes pop up in many of these different films. Take Elf, for example. If you've never seen it, Elf is a story about Will Ferrell, who plays a boy named Buddy, who grows up in the North Pole, believing himself to be an elf. When Buddy becomes an adult, he leaves the North Pole and he heads to New York City, in hopes of meeting his father, Walter Hobbs. But while Buddy is elated to finally meet his father, Walter is distressed at this newfound burden of now being responsible for this accident-prone man-child. You see, much of the tension in that film really revolves around Buddy's desperate desire for his father's approval and his father's growing impatience at his hijinks that really keep wreaking havoc on Walter's career and entire way of life. 
Well, take a movie like Elf and compare that with, let's say, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Any Charlie Brown Christmas fans with us today? All right, I'm seeing some hands here. There, everyone's favorite lovable loser is navigating the Christmas blues. And while he's doing that, he receives an invitation from his friends to be a director of a Christmas play starring all of his friends. And while some of his friends have a little skepticism about Charlie Brown's competency, to direct the play, Charlie Brown nonetheless is absolutely elated and he accepts the invitation to be the director. But you see, Charlie Brown's enthusiasm, it quickly turns to frustration and it quickly turns to disappointment as he encounters all the challenges of navigating his friend's egos and short attention spans. Seeking to set the perfect mood, Charlie Brown ducks out of the rehearsal and he goes and secures the perfect Christmas tree, a Christmas tree he just knows his friends are going to love. And so he comes back to the rehearsal with this pitiful little Christmas tree. And when he does, he is pelted with complaints and insults as his friends reach the end of their rope and lose all patience with him. You know, really in both of these movies, Buddy the Elf and Charlie Brown are dealing with the same problem, the same tension. Will their big hearts and good intentions be met with love and acceptance? Or, or will their foibles and their shortcomings prove to be too much for anyone to bear? And will their loved one's patience finally run out? I wonder this morning, have you ever found yourself in the shoes of Buddy the Elf or Charlie Brown? Have you ever wondered to yourself, is my boss gonna remain patient with me or will his patience run out? Have you ever asked yourself, is, is my wife gonna remain patient with me or will her patience run out? Hey, here's a question for you this morning. Have you ever found yourself wondering, will God remain patient with me? Or will his patience, like that of Walter Hobbs and Lucy Van Pelt, will it run out? Well, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 103, and there we're going to see three reasons why we can have complete confidence that God's patience will never, ever run out with us. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 103, and we are going to begin in verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, and the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. The first reason this morning we can have complete confidence that the patience of God will never run out with us is simply this. God knew what he was getting himself into when he saved us. God knew what he was getting himself into when he saved us. You know, it doesn't matter if you're potty training a toddler, looking for a parking spot, or waiting for a package to be delivered. When something you care about ends up taking longer than you expected, it can be very, very difficult to remain cool, calm, and collected. I mean, let's face it, we want things in life to be virtually instantaneous. 
We don't wanna wait for anything. We want the ETA to be honored. We want the timeline to be met. We want everything to happen in the blink of an eye, and if it takes any longer than we were anticipating, we might just have a meltdown. You know, when that package from Amazon that was supposed to be delivered yesterday shows up today, we can absolutely lose our minds, can't we? When your lunch is 15 minutes late and you're getting hangry, you might be tempted in your impatience to blow up at that Grubhub driver. Maybe you're in the throes of raising children and you're trying to potty train a toddler right now and you read some book, some blog, some article that said little juniors should really be potty trained by now and you're starting to feel the panic set in, you're starting to feel that you're behind schedule you're starting to feel perhaps like a failure as a parent. The reality is ETAs and timelines are helpful and necessary much of the time. But here's the dirty little secret about these timelines that we concoct in our minds. For the most part, you and I, we have no idea how long things are going to take in life. We just don't. We are not all-knowing. We are not omniscient. We do not know what the future holds. And so when we have some expectations, some deadline, some ETA, some timeline, and something takes longer than we expected, we can start to feel a little panicked. And in that panic, we can really lose all patience. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself here. A few weeks ago, I called my cell phone provider and I was told I have an estimated hold time of four minutes. Estimated hold time of four minutes. I was pretty pleased to get this knowledge that I was only going to be waiting for four minutes. Well, I don't have to tell you, 40 minutes later, I'm still on hold. I've still not been able to get a hold of anyone. And when I finally do get someone on the phone, it's very difficult to remain patient because if you've ever been there, if you've ever had an expectation for something to happen and it took longer than you thought it would, you know what that feels like, don't you? You know that you feel out of control, you feel helpless, you feel you have no leverage, and it's not long before panic can start to kind of set in and it's so easy in those moments to go from thinking, this is taking longer than I thought to this might never, ever happen. But did you know that it is impossible for God to think those thoughts? You see, in verse eight, we're reading about the patience, not of a mere man, not of a mortal, not of a creature, but of a creator, the one true God. And his patience, according to verse eight, is described as a patience that's marked by mercy, and grace, and God is described there as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, the reality is, while we don't know the future, while we don't know how long something might take, God does. God knows all things. He's omniscient, and he knows the future before it comes to pass. And so, since God knows all things, he can never be blindsided. He can never be caught off guard. He can never be surprised and find himself tempted to lose patience. 
You see, when the Lord God Almighty created the heavens, he knew just how long that work would take. When he created the earth, he knew just how long that work would take. When he created the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, he knew just how long that work would take. And when he began working in your life and in mine, if you are a Christ follower, he knew exactly how long that work would take. He was fully aware of all of our sinfulness and our selfishness. He knew how long it would take for us to get to a point of disgust with some of that selfishness and sinfulness. He knew how long it would take for that disgust to actually move us to take some baby steps towards growth and healing. And guess what, folks? He knows in the future all of the growth and the setbacks we're going to experience with our idolatry, with our greed, with our lust, with our temper, you name it. God knows all of those things because he is all-knowing. And although he knows all of those things, he saved us anyway. Please don't misunderstand me this morning. Our sin can hurt the heart of God, but our sin can never surprise the mind of God. When he saves us and begins his work in our life to conform us to the image of his son, to make us more holy, to make us more like him, when he started on that mission in my life and in yours, he knew what he was signing up for. He knew he had his work cut out for him. He knew all the selfish patterns, all the sinful patterns he was going to have to work through but he was perfectly equipped and remains perfectly equipped for that job because as it says in verse eight, he's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Another reason this morning that we can have complete confidence that God's patience will never run out is simply this. God keeps no record of wrongs. God keeps no record of our wrongs. Picking up in verses 10 through 12, there we read Psalm 103, verse 10. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God keeps no record of our wrongs. Hey, I wonder if you've ever known anybody who had some small little habit that over the course of time just drove you absolutely nuts. Anybody know anybody like that or is it just me? Something small, something trivial, something inconsequential, but enough days or weeks or months of it in a row, and eventually it grates on your nerves and it becomes almost impossible to remain patient. Have you ever known a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, or a friend like that? Well, in case you're wondering, for me, I happen to live with somebody like that. One of my daughters, who will remain nameless, has this bad little habit of going into the kitchen to get, let's say, a bowl of cereal. And while she's in there, she opens like four or five drawers, six or seven cabinets, 
finds what she needs, and then just leaves it all open and just exits the kitchen. I don't understand how this works, to be honest with you. To me, it's a reflex, right? Open, close, open, close, open, close, open, close, open, close. But for some reason, for her, this is something she's not in the habit of doing. And to find one spoon and one bowl, we got to open seven cabinets and five or six different drawers. And then she gets what she needs and she kind of goes into the dining room to eat her cereal and goes on with her day. Now, let's be honest, that's a pretty small cross for me to have to bear as a parent. But the truth is, it grates on my nerves. It shouldn't, it's small. It's easy to fix, just close it, move on with your day. It doesn't cost anything to remedy that situation. But it really bothers me, and it is so difficult for me to remain patient. Do you know why that is? It's because I'm keeping a record of wrongs. Now, I'm not writing it down or putting notes in my phone, but it's top of mind for me how many times my daughter has done this in spite of me saying, please close the drawers, please close the cabinets. It's just right here. It's top of mind. It's in the front of my brain. And so when it happens, I go, it happened yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And how many years is it going to be until you learn to close the drawers and the cabinets? And so it's no wonder, since I'm keeping a record of wrongs, it's no wonder that I can so easily lose patience. But this morning, I want to tell you, God does not keep a record of wrongs for his children. Let's look back at this text. In verse 12, it says that our sins, our transgressions, those have been removed as far away from us as the east is from the west. How far is that? How would you calculate how far the east is from the west? You cannot. Verse 11 God's compassion is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great his steadfast love is toward those who fear him. God keeps no record of his children's wrongs. They're as far as the east is from the west. And what God's word is saying there is it's immeasurable. It's limitless. Through Christ's finished work on the cross, when we trust on Christ, when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, when, when that happens, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. God doesn't take them into account. He's not keeping a running tab anymore. You know, it doesn't really matter if you grew up in a Protestant background or Catholic background or a different religious tradition or no religious tradition at all. Here's my observation I want to share with you today. While the Bible is crystal clear about the patience of God, about the long-suffering nature of God, about the great mercy and tenderness of God, while that's crystal clear in Scripture, for many of us, if we're being honest, I'm willing to bet that probably does not line up with our concept of God. Through countless conversations and just reflecting on my own life and what I've seen, I believe for many of us, in our hearts and minds, the concept we have of God is God is a bit like a drill sergeant. Uh, he's maybe like an overbearing, critical parent that demands first-time obedience or else. 
Maybe we'll go a step further and say he has a three strikes and you're out rule. Whatever our idea of God is, I believe for many of us, we greatly underestimate the amazing, immeasurable patience of God. In the gospel according to Matthew, Peter approaches Jesus and essentially has a question about how patient he has to be with other people. Peter asks Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive someone that sins against me? Where can I draw that line in the sand and say, once they step over that line, I'm off the hook. I don't need to be patient any longer. I don't need to forgive them anymore. How many times, Jesus, do I need to be patient and forgiving towards someone when they sin against me. Matthew 18, 21, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter, feeling really pious, says, as many as seven times? And that was pretty good. I'm gonna forgive up to seven. As many as seven, Jesus, is that how many times? Seven offenses and then I no longer need to be patient. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And the point here is not that when someone sins against you 78 times, we no longer are required to be patient and merciful. This is hyperbole, this is a figure of speech. This is Jesus commanding sinful people like you and me to have no limit to our patience. Question for you this morning. If God expects you and me to be that patient, doesn't it stand to reason that he's at least as patient towards us? Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says, speaking of those who have been born again and indwelt by the spirit of God, speaking of those who have been saved from their sins, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a little, there's no condemnation, why? because Christ has settled that at the cross and God is not keeping a record of our wrongs. Jeremiah 31, 34 says it this way. God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's almost as if God has some sort of selective amnesia where he somehow removes that from his mind. Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 and 23 describes it this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never, never, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. You see, instead of treating us like what we are, which is repeat offenders, God in his mercy and grace through his son's work on the cross, has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And God is keeping no record of our wrongs. He's dealing with us as though we were innocent because Christ purchased our innocence on our behalf on the cross. God keeps no record of our wrongs. Third and finally today, we can have complete confidence that the patience of God will never be depleted. It will never run dry because God never forgets our frailty. God never forgets our frailty. 
Verses 13 and 14, it says this. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. God's a compassionate father who remembers where we came from, that we're creatures, that we're weak, that we're frail, that we're broken, that we came from dust. Have you ever had the misfortune of being at a child's Little League game and sitting near the lunatic dad in the bleachers? Have you ever been there? It's quite a spectacle, you know. I'm talking about the dad who's like shaming and screaming at their kid for dropping the pop fly, the one who's humiliating them for being afraid of the ball, the dad that's quick to remind that son or that daughter second place is the first loser. You know that dad? If you've ever seen that, it is unbelievably awkward, and you can have a great deal of what young people call secondhand embarrassment. It's very cringy to be in those situations, and the reality is everybody in the stands and playing on the field and all around realizes something that this overzealous dad has lost sight of. Everybody around except this lunatic dad realizes that these kids are kids. They're not adults. They're not professional athletes. They're not future Hall of Famers. These kids are kids. Today, I want you to realize God is not, not like that father. God is described as a compassionate father in verse 13, and God never loses sight of the fact that we are weak, that we are frail, that we are prone to be sinful, that we are but dust. God never loses sight of the reality that we are frail and weak and broken. But you know, what's kind of funny is while God never loses sight of that, oftentimes we can lose sight of that in our own lives. I've seen this happen two basic different kinds of ways. One, we feel so much desire and zeal in our own lives to grow in holiness that we tend to lose sight of the fact that we are but dust, that we are but frail, or perhaps we're trying to help someone else grow in their Christian walk, and in our zeal to help them, we maybe push a little too hard and lose sight of the fact that we're frail, that we're broken, and that we're weak. I was reminded of this not too long ago. I came across a list of 21 questions that were designed to be given to groups of men or women in small groups to meet on a weekly basis and ask these questions of one another. The questions were designed to build in some accountability into people's lives. That is a noble goal. I am not knocking accountability. But as I read through this list of 21 questions, I found myself just feeling like a deflated balloon. It just felt so heavy, 
that the standard was so high that there was so much kind of almost browbeating or shame just sort of baked into this whole approach that it made me kind of just wince a little bit. I wanna be clear today, I'm not finding fault with any one of these questions in particular, nor am I trying to diss healthy, gracious accountability. Healthy, gracious accountability is a gift. I hope you have that in your life. But as I read through these questions, it just seems like with good intentions, with all sorts of zeal, it's lost at times in our desire to grow to be more like Christ that at the end of the day, we remain frail and we remain weak. But I'll let you judge for yourself. I'm gonna share some of these questions with you this morning. Here are the questions a group of three men or a group of three women were supposed to meet together and ask on an ongoing weekly basis. Are you ready? Question number one. Question number one, are you finding consistency in your daily time with God? Question number two, what are you learning about God and yourself? Question number three, what steps of faith are you taking in obedience to Christ? Question number four, are there areas of your life that are hindering spiritual growth? Question number five, where are you growing in the fruit of the spirit? Question number six, have you been faithful in your church attendance and participation? Question number seven, how are you making your family a priority in your life? Question number eight, what temptations are you facing? Question number nine, are you enjoying your time with God in prayer? Question number 10, is there anything you need to surrender to God? Question number 11, have your words and attitude reflected Christ this week? And the list goes on and on until we get to question 21, my favorite question, question number 21. Once you get through this list, question number 21, have you been honest in your answers? Now listen, I don't know about you, but if I was lying somewhere along the way between questions one through 20, I'm not gonna start telling the truth at question number 21. <laughs> but maybe you're a better person than me, I don't know. I'm not knocking good, healthy accountability, and I'm not criticizing building it in with these intentional strategies or inviting questions from a trusted group. I'm not knocking that at all. All I'm saying this morning is in our zeal to grow in our spiritual lives or in our zeal to help others grow, we must remember that it doesn't matter how long you've been following Christ, it doesn't matter how much you may have grown in holiness, it doesn't matter how much you may have matured in Christ, there is still this inconvenient reality that you and I are frail, we're weak, and we are but dust. The good news this morning is God, he remembers our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. He's patient towards us. As it says in verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to all those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
I wonder this morning, can you say in your heart of hearts that you fear God? By that I mean, do you know for certain that you have surrendered your life and yielded it to God? Have you confessed your sins and repented of them, trusting yourself to Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and confidence in his finished work on the cross on your behalf? If you haven't, with all due respect, God is keeping a record of your wrongs. Your transgressions have not yet been removed as far as the east is from the west, and there's coming a day when you're going to have to give an account for your life. But if in humility and reverent fear you turn to God, and you trust on Christ, you confess your sins, you believe in your heart, and confess in your mouth, if you do that, he'll welcome you, he'll save you, he will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, and he will redeem your life from the pit. But for those of us who are in Christ, I wanna urge you this morning to not forget that while our sins and shortcomings are many, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide or keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. God's not like Walter Hobbes. And God's not like Lucy Van Pelt. Our foibles and sins and shortcomings can never exhaust the patience of God because his patience is limitless. It is without end and it is inexhaustible towards all those who fear him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for comforting us with this truth, Lord, that you are indeed patient. God, we thank you that while we can have all different sorts of misconceptions about you, you reveal how you truly are so that we can receive the comfort and good news that you are good and gracious and merciful. You're long-suffering and patient towards us. God, I thank you that although we could never earn it, we could never deserve it. As a father shows compassion to his children, so you have compassion on all of those who fear you. God, please help us to remember this when we stumble and fall. Help us to remind those we love of this when they stumble and fall. And Lord, please help the goodness of your heart and the beauty and the glory of your patience warm our affections 
to you. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.